This morning's message is called Dirty Feet and Love's Destiny. This morning, we are going to look at a very familiar passage of Scripture. It is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 13. It is one of the stories that are not included in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Apostle John wrote his Gospel last, and he wrote it many, many years after almost everything else was written. So John tells us some of the more personal and perhaps the more embarrassing things that happened the night before Jesus was crucified. One such story is about how the God of the universe washed dirty feet. Why would God stoop so low as to wash dirty feet? Washing dirty feet was a slave's job. In fact, it was a Gentile slave's job. Even Jewish slaves were never required to wash their master's feet. It was considered the job of the most lowly, the most unworthy. But on the other hand, it was also something done within a family. Foot washing was something that wives did for their husbands. It was something that children did for their parents. And it was something that disciples did for their teachers. And disciples were often called a teacher's children. So obviously there was a level of familial intimacy along with love and devotion that were involved in this relationship-based foot washing. And as we shall see, this is also the case when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. It appears that in God's economy, love and washing dirty feet go hand in hand. And not just for the apostles but for all believers. I think I can see some dirty feet in your future. <laughs> so this morning we are going to walk through a portion of this chapter verse by verse and see what we can learn about love and washing dirty feet. So let's begin in verse 1. It says this, chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The first thing I want to address is the intro, now before the feast of Passover. It looks like a contradiction, because John says that this supper was before the feast of Passover. But the other Gospels specifically state that, no, no, this was the actual Passover meal. If we look in Matthew 26, verses 17 through 20, it says this, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. So the question might be, how do we get two different keeping of time? Well, that's exactly what it was. According to Jewish scholars, the Jews in the north, which would be the Galileans, Jesus and his whole crew, <laughs> they celebrated the Passover on the evening of the 13th. Jews keep time not from midnight to midnight or sunup to sunup, but from sundown to sundown. So on the day that we would say was the 13th, it would end at sundown. And Jesus would eat the Passover on the 14th day, the same day he would be crucified, fulfilling 
the appropriate law requirements that it be celebrated on the 14th. Other Jews in the South, they didn't necessarily follow that same timekeeping. And so they killed their lambs on the 14th and then ate their Passover dinner on beginning what would be the 15th. So you can see why some say this is the Passover. And John says this was before the Passover. Depends on how you're looking at it, how you're keeping time. But it was all the right day. <laughs> so John 13:1, he continues. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus came to love and represent all men even the lowliest of men, even the poorest of men. No one was excluded from God's love in Christ. All men were equally fallible and fallen, and Jesus loved them all just the way they were. But in particular, it says, he loved his own, those with whom he had relationship. And if it weren't written down, we might not believe just who it was that he loved. Jesus loved a bunch of ruffians. <laughs> he loved a tax collector. He loved a traitor. He loved a thief. And he loved a loudmouth. He loved some mama boys. And he loved some cowards. Jesus loved them all. And he loved them to the end, which means to the uttermost. Jesus knew all their failures, both their past failures and the ones that they were going to commit fairly soon. But he loved them with a love that was immovable and unchangeable. He loved them with purpose and destiny. He loved them all the way into death. I believe the Apostle John is setting the foundation for us for this passage of Scripture. And that foundation is Jesus' incredible love for those who are His. God's love for us contains both purpose and destiny. And washing dirty feet is part and parcel of love's destiny both for Jesus and for us. Verse 2. During the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Right here, the Apostle John inserts information into the story that he himself did not have at the time the story actually happened. And he does this because he wants us to see the extremity of Jesus' love within the story and to help us appropriately take awe. <laughs> Jesus loved a traitor. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. John is telling us that Jesus knew exactly who and what he was. He was and is the one and only begotten Son of God who has all authority and who has purpose and destiny in his condescension into humanity. And that condescension did not change who or what he was and still is. He was and is God in the flesh. He was and is God dressed in perfect humanity. And it's because he knew his identity and his purpose and his destiny that he could do whatever he saw the Father do, which means he must have seen what the Father did just before he did it himself. Verse 4, he rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. This is a physical picture of what Jesus and the Father had already done, spiritually speaking. When we look in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, we find these words. 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That's not an easy thing to understand. I always went, huh? (laughs) And so I like the amplified version of this, where it says this, speaking of Jesus, who, although he existed in the form and unchanging essence of God, as being one with him and possessing the fullness of all the divine attributes, the entire nature of deity, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or asserted as if he did not already possess it or was afraid of losing it. He's saying, it doesn't matter what form I come in, I am always God. I can't lose my divinity. I can't change my divinity. I don't have to prove my divinity. I am what I am. Jesus never ceased to be God in his nature and essence, and becoming human in no way reduced him to being less than God. Continuing in verse 7, But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming to be in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even the death on a cross. In John 13, verse 4, when it says that he laid aside his outer garments, that's exactly what this scripture is talking about. It means that Jesus laid aside his royal prerogatives, such as being all-powerful and all-knowing and visibly glorious. (laughs) Jesus traded his royal attire for the clothing of a slave, and that clothing was humanity. All of humanity was enslaved by the power of sin and death. And only God, who in his extravagant love and kindness, would stoop so low as to become a human being for the express purpose of taking our place and bearing our sin into death, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. So the Apostle Paul here uses the exact picture of Jesus coming into humanity in the form of a bondservant. But it wasn't just any kind of bondservant. He was a bondservant of love. Love's destiny includes washing dirty feet. So at this point in the dinner, uh, Jesus was physically dressed in only an undergarment of some type. According to the scholars that I read, men traditionally wore only three garments. They had an outer garment, you know, the long flowing robes we usually see in in the movies. They had what they would call their inner garment, which was a tunic. Yeah, kind of like a long nightshirt, and sometimes it would have a sash, sometimes not. And then there was an undergarment. (laughs) Use your imagination. (laughs) So Jesus is, at this point in the dinner, just dressed in an undergarment. Then he takes on a towel, which was actually an apron. When I was picturing this, I thought to myself, how appropriate, because he stands there, as humanity. Didn't humanity tie an apron around themselves once upon a time? (laughs) Here Jesus is, completely naked. In that culture, being in your skivvies was considered to be entirely naked. (laughs) So this is a very vulnerable state, but he is us. He is representing us before the Father. And in reality, before the Father, that is exactly what we were. We were naked as the day we were born with an apron trying to work our way into God's good grace. And that was never God's plan. 
as Jesus stood there as a picture of humanity, he stood there naked, awaiting the time when we would be clothed with his very own righteousness. But on the other hand, Jesus, knowing exactly who he is and what his purpose and his end or his destiny is going to be, also reveals the truth that he is currently naked, not just as a man, but as God. He laid aside all of his previous glory for the express purpose of serving and saving mankind. This makes me cry. Slaves were purposely dressed in little to nothing in order to constantly shame them and remind them of their value as being little to nothing. Only those who were important or valuable or rich got to wear tunics and robes and sashes and headdresses. But our Jesus has borne away our nakedness, our shame, and our slavery. He hath clothed us in the garments of salvation. We don't just have a robe of righteousness. We will never be naked again. Isaiah 61.10 says this, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments, plural, of salvation. He has covered me with his robe of righteousness. And as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. That is how our Father sees us. He sees us dressed in the royal regalia. In Christ Jesus, we are never naked before our Father or before man, because no one can take away our garments of salvation. Verse 5, Then he, Jesus, poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, we don't know for sure exactly when this happened during the Seder ceremony. There is a place in the order of the Seder where the participants all wash their hands again <laughs> in preparation for eating the meal. It is very possible that Jesus chose this point in the ceremonial service to do that because we know that they ate later. So it is possible that Jesus chose to wash feet at this point instead of washing hands in order to teach his disciples an object lesson. You see, Jesus, as the head and host of this Seder ceremony, could choose to adapt it however he wanted to. As long as you could check all the boxes of everything that was normally in a Seder, you could mix it up. <laughs> you could make it exciting and interesting. Jesus made this one really exciting and interesting. <laughs> he chose this opportunity to teach them something about themselves and about love's destiny. Instead of each man washing their own or each other's hands, Jesus took the opportunity to wash their feet. Now, Jesus didn't do this from a distance. He didn't just say, pour your feet out here and let me water them. <laughs> That's not what he did. This was up close and personal. Jesus knelt down with a basin and poured water over their feet. And then he took their feet into his own hands. I love that. He took their feet into his hands. One of the things we can pull out would maybe be this, that our feet represent our walk. And when we put our walk, our life, into his hands, he has the ability to cleanse them and make them fit for service. He took their feet into his hands and he dried them with his towel. And he did this all without saying a word, all without explaining exactly what he was doing. Now, the majority of the disciples seemed to be 
okay with all of this. So they remained quiet through the entire process, probably out of astonishment more than anything else, because this is their Messiah. This is their king. And he took off all of his clothes, and now he's acting like a slave. They're probably a little flabbergasted. One of the reasons they were so flabbergasted is because even when there was a familiar relationship, a family relationship, you never washed the feet of somebody under you. A wife was considered in subjection to her husband so she could wash his feet. Children were in subjection to the parents so they could wash their parents' feet. So for the Messiah, the King of Israel, to wash anybody's feet <laughs> was absurd. I'm sure they were thinking, Jesus, what are you doing? <laughs> but of course, the only one who spoke up is Peter. I love Peter. That I love he's, that he's such a mess. I love that he's so real. <laughs> Gives me hope. <laughs> In verse 6, it says this, Then he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? You can almost hear the attitude in the question. He's saying, Jesus, have you lost your mind? <laughs> do you really think I would let you wash my feet? It's like Peter is saying, look, I know my place and I know your place. And this is all wrong. <laughs> Verse 7, Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now but afterward you will understand. So in other words, Jesus says, I am going to explain this. There is a point that you're going to get. And Peter, in his very Peter-like way, you shall never wash my feet. And that word never means not ever in a million years am I going to let you wash my feet. <laughs> now at first glance, it looks like Peter is the only one who notices how absurd it is to have the king of Israel washing feet. But in reality, Peter is actually resisting God's will for him. If Peter had been thinking straight, he would have recognized Jesus' authority and submitted to whatever Jesus deemed necessary and appropriate. And then in humility, ask for understanding but not our beloved Peter. <laughs> Peter's pretty sure he knows best. Continuing verse 8, Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, then you have no share with me. Now I want to tell you what this particular verse does not say. This verse does not say, If I do not wash you, you are not saved and will go straight to hell. <laughs> that is usually how people interpret this particular scripture. If Jesus doesn't wash you, that's that. You're out of here. That's not what he's talking about. Salvation is not the topic. Salvation is not the context. Jesus isn't telling them how to get saved. We're going to see that shortly. They're already saved. But he is saying, there is something you need to know about what I'm doing. You see, our context is about love and what love does. And at this point in their relationship, Jesus isn't trying to get them saved. <laughs> They're already saved because of their faith in him. But he is trying to make a point about love's destiny, his destiny, and the destiny of his disciples. Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. I want us to take a look at these two words. The first word, wash, is the Greek word nipto, and it means to cleanse. But it means especially to cleanse the hands or the feet or the face. It means ceremonially to perform ablution. It means to wash. 
Now the first definition is simply to wash as a part of the body. It's not the entire body, it's not a bath, okay? And the second part of that definition includes the idea of ritual cleansing. This kind of washing was to make one ritually clean or fit for service or ready for its intended purpose. I really like that. Jesus was trying to get them ready to fulfill their intended purpose. This washing actually had nothing to do with cleanliness, this kind of washing. So when a Jew participated in a full ritual cleansing, he would first take a bath, <laughs> and then he would go to a mikvah or an immersion tank. He would be completely immersed, making himself completely pure in God's eyes, and that was called ritual purification. The purpose of this ritual purification was to be completely set apart or sanctified unto God's purposes, God's worship, God's plans, and God's glory. It was their way of showing God that they were all in. Whatever you want from me, I'm all in. Whatever you want me to do, I'm all in. That's really what this was saying. I have made myself ready. We as Christians do not make ourselves ready. <laughs> Jesus makes us ready. <laughs> But to this day, many Jews all over the world actually buy brand new dishes and pots and pans in order to celebrate the Passover. And what they do is they do a ritual cleansing. First they wash the dishes to make sure they're clean, and then they have a different kind of washing to make them ritually pure. They're set aside for God's plans, God's purpose, God's worship. They're considered holy. We have already been made holy. So we don't have to worry about trying to make ourselves holy. We have already been made holy and set apart unto Jesus. Now obviously Peter wasn't thinking of this kind of washing. Peter really didn't know what in the world Jesus was doing. <laughs> but what was Jesus thinking? Was Jesus trying to say to Peter and the disciples, um, you might have some things in your life that aren't exactly set apart for my purposes say like maybe a little problem with submission, <laughs> uh, maybe like leaning onto your own understanding. <laughs> One of the things I find interesting is that in preparation for this feast, they would have all had a bath before they came. You didn't show up for Passover dirty. This was one of the biggest ritual uh, spiritual feasts of the year. You didn't show up without taking your bath and you didn't show up without taking your mikvah either. You made sure you were clean, and you made sure you were prepared to participate in worship. So these guys aren't dirty. So this washing that Jesus had done for them had nothing to do with having actually dirty feet. But Jesus is making a point. One of the other things that I find interesting, too, is that a lot of scholars say, well, there probably wasn't a slave available, and so none of the foot washing would have taken place when they arrived. That's usually not the way it worked either, because most Jews didn't have slaves. You had to have money to have slaves. So you washed your own feet. You washed your own feet. So it isn't that they came dirty <laughs> to dinner. It isn't that they didn't come prepared for dinner. Jesus is making a point, and that's what we have to remember. The next word I want you to have a look at is the word share. Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now what exactly does that mean? 
The Thayer's lexicon says this, share means a part, a part due or assigned to one, a lot or destiny. What was Jesus' lot? What was Jesus' destiny? Well, unbeknownst to his disciples, his destiny is to submit to the authority and the will of the Father, and on behalf of the Father's love for them, continue to lay down his life to the uttermost, to be obedient unto death, even death on a cross. But what does Peter believe Jesus' destiny is? Right about that point. He's the rightful king of Israel, and Peter's expecting a share in Jesus' kingdom. Peter's not thinking of laying down his life. He's thinking of the high life in the kingdom. We're going to rule. We're going to take over. It's going to be great. Verse 9, Simon Peter says to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Hands, head, and feet. These were the parts of the body that were usually ritually washed in order to be set aside for sacred purposes. Peter is saying, when it comes to your destiny, I'm all in. He had no idea what he was saying. <laughs> He's like, wash whatever you need to wash, because I want to be ready to rule and reign in your kingdom. Go ahead, sanctify me for your purposes. Go right ahead. I sort of see Jesus, you know, just shaking his head and laughing. <laughs> he just loves Peter. <laughs> if nothing else, Peter has got zeal. <laughs> Verse 10, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. Here is where Jesus takes a physical reality to explain a spiritual reality. He's saying one of you isn't all in. One of you isn't set apart for God's plans and purposes and destiny. Verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. John obviously wanted us to know that what Jesus did there that evening, Jesus did with full knowledge. Jesus washed his traitor's feet with full knowledge. John wanted us to recognize the depth of Jesus' love for the worst of sinners, that there was no extent to which Jesus would not go to reach somebody who was lost. That is an awesome example of how Jesus treats us when we fail. Jesus doesn't seek to force change in our life. He simply continues to pour out his love over our dirty feet. Those things that haven't yet come into alignment. <laughs> those ways of thinking, those mistakes, those failures. He just pours love over them and invites us to participate in his love and in love's destiny. Jesus demonstrated God's love and amazing grace by washing even Judas's feet. Judas could have come clean, if you will, at any time during this service. He knew Jesus knew. He didn't have to follow through in his original plan. Jesus gives him opportunity after opportunity. I know. I know what you've done. It's okay. I still love you. Come and be part of us. Join us. Let God's best destiny be in your life too. But Judas refused. Verse 12. 
when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. Again, I love the picture. It's the pictures we find hiding in the scriptures. The picture of Jesus rising from his original place of service after stooping so low and being fully clothed once again with his initial glory and then returning to his original place, the right hand of the Father. It says, at that point, he said unto them, do you understand what I have done to you? And it appears that they either didn't understand or they didn't want to admit that they understood. (laughs) Because nobody volunteered anything. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. The disciples probably got even more uncomfortable. (laughs) It was bad enough that Jesus was washing feet. Now you're asking us to wash feet? Ew. (laughs) Not only could that be really gross, it could have been slightly humiliating (laughs) to put yourself in a position you think is below you, to become like a slave, like Jesus. Now, This is where we should also be aware of something that happened in the same evening that John does not talk about. In Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 30, we find that this is the same night, this is the same arena, only John, since Luke had already wrote it, didn't bother to repeat it. And Luke wasn't actually there. (laughs) So he got this information from somebody else who wasn't telling on themselves. (laughs) Verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Hmm, who do you think led that (laughs) discussion? (laughs) Verse 25, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves, just like Jesus had just demonstrated. Verse 27, for who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? It's a trick question. (laughs) Who had just done both? (laughs) Is it not that the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? Verse 28, Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations, and I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. We can see here that Jesus was trying to prepare them for their God-given purpose and destiny, but their view and opinion of themselves was way too big to fit into the kingdom (laughs) and destiny's love. They did not understand their complete and utter inability to bring forth the plans and purposes of God on their own. They didn't know how utterly helpless they were or how utterly helpless they were going to feel in just a few short hours. Jesus wanted them to know that the plans and purposes that God had for them did indeed include a throne. But prior to that, there would be an awful lot of dirty feet that needed to be washed. And they, especially as leaders, would be asked to lay aside their own estimation of themselves, both good and bad, and receive the Father's view and opinion 
of them and others. The followers of human opinion was that all men were of infinite and eternal value and that he loved them with an everlasting love. And just as the Father sent Jesus to show us the Father's heart, even so we are sent to display the Father's heart through acts of loving service. Now, I've never been a real fan of the word service. <laughs> Even when people say, if so-and-so is serving the Lord, I was like, I just don't like it. <laughs> because being in relationship with Jesus is so much more than the work of a servant. We are sons and daughters. We have relationship. It isn't about just doing stuff for Jesus. It's about Jesus doing stuff through us. So I've never been a fan of the word service, but I want you to see what the Greek says of the word service means. In the Strong's, it means to be an attendant, that is, to wait on, menially, or as a host, as a friend, or as a teacher. Technically, in the scripture, it's used as a Christian deacon. The very same word that means to serve means to minister. It means to serve or to be in the office of a deacon. What I like about this is that Jesus fulfilled all the types that night of being an attendant. He waited on them as a servant slave, doing something menial. But he also served them as a host, a friend, and a teacher. Jesus served them as a bond servant to show them that love stoops low and accepts you right where you are and just as you are. Jesus served them as a teacher by not leaving them in the same way he found them, <laughs> but empowered them to think like a king. Jesus served them as a host, showing honor to them by washing their feet, elevating them to the place of honored guest at the king's table. Jesus served them as a friend by demonstrating what love really looks like. It looks like laying down your life for your friends. That very night, Jesus would say to them, John 15, 13, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus then continues, verse 15, for I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. I don't believe Jesus is saying that we should have foot washing services. Ritual cleansings can be very quickly turned into just a ritual. <laughs> I've been to foot washing services and people mostly don't like them. <laughs> but they rarely change somebody's heart or somebody's life. That wasn't what Jesus was talking about. Verse 16. Truly, truly, Jesus said, I say unto you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. In other words, if Jesus' destiny, including the service of washing, quote-unquote, dirty feet, with the love of the Father, then so will ours. Yes, we have our share in the kingdom, but the kingdom is called the kingdom of the Son of his love. So we must first let the love of our Father and our Jesus wash over us and cleanse us from our dusty, carnal, selfish thinking so that we too can be all in and ready to participate in love's destiny of demonstrating love to others through Christ. 
we too are called to pour out God's love by being a friend, a teacher, a host, and yes, sometimes even a bondservant. Verse 17, Jesus said, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We, like Jesus, need to know who we are, what belongs to us, and where we are headed. Jesus' destiny had everything to do with love, and so does ours. We are the body and the bride of Christ. We have inherited the kingdom of God. We sit in heavenly places even now. But before we take our place in heaven physically, our Father bids us to have the same mind as Christ, to empty ourselves by pouring out the love of our Father onto and into the life of others. We have a destiny provided by our Father, the destiny of love and life. Jesus knows, our Father knows, that life always becomes life more abundant when it's given to someone else, when we share our life. Our Father knows that we need to take time to put our feet in the water of God's Word and let Him pour His love and His truth over us, cleansing us from our natural thinking and imparting to us His truth and His love so that we can apprehend the kingdom and the kingdom destiny that awaits us. God knows we can't do it in our own strength, so he has given us his very own son in all of his fullness to live inside of us, to cause us to know and to do his good pleasure. And it is our Father's good pleasure that we participate in love's destiny of washing each other's so-called dirty feet. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father God, I thank you that you call us to spend time with you. To take the opportunity to put our feet into your love. To put our feet into your word. To put our life into your life. And receive of your goodness and your fullness. You bid us to receive all that you have bought and paid for. You bid us to understand who we are in the kingdom. You bid us to walk even as you walked but not in our own strength. I love that you don't call us to do anything by ourselves. You call us to be available. You already call us all in. We've already been completely sanctified and set apart unto you, but now it's up to us to listen and receive and then pour out, to give to others what we have freely received. So, Father God, I ask you would show us those things like the disciples when, when maybe what we're thinking isn't the way it really is. Maybe we had a high estimation of ourselves, or maybe we had a low estimation of ourselves. but the truth is we need your estimation of who we are. We need to know who we are and whose we are and what belongs to us. Not just for us, but for others. There is a whole world out there with dirty feet. They haven't been bathed. They haven't been loved. They haven't recognized what you've done for them. Father God, make us instruments of your love. Pour yourself out through us onto them and let us glorify you and all that we think and say and do. In Jesus' name, amen.